The title of our message today is Staying Strong When Life Turns Ugly. I would love that there would be a world where there was no difficulties, hardships, struggles, illnesses, tragedies. But that's not the world that God created. And we have to say that God created this world with all of these negative things that are in it because God knows everything. And so God knew that there would be a, a celestial rebellion with Satan and the fallen angels. He knew that there would be an earthly rebellion and he knew that suffering would be the end result of that. Jesus let us know that as Christians, you cannot expect that you will not suffer. Although there are those who teach that, it is not true. Jesus said, rejoice when you are persecuted. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. You're actually supposed to rejoice. I, I don't see that fulfilled very often when we're being persecuted, rejoicing that we're facing the persecution. Not only did Jesus say that we will have persecution, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will have persecution, the Bible says as well, but he told us that we're going to have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world, Jesus said. In this world, you'll have trouble? Is that like a promise? Jesus is like, that's a promise, not a threat. You're going to have trouble. So, so Peter said, don't think it's strange when fiery trials come upon you, knowing that the testing of your faith, and it goes on to talk about what the test of your faith does, but don't think it's strange when, when we have trouble, but we still do. Something difficult happens to us. Some tragedy takes place. And I'm right there with you. I'm not, I'm not looking down on you here. I'm right there with you. I'm like, why? Why did this have to happen? I thought it was just supposed to be life, happiness, butterflies, rainbows, light rainstorms. I thought that's what life was all about. But God has his plans for our struggles. His purposes in suffering. And this is seen clearly on the cross. The greatest work that was ever done on this earth was God himself entering into suffering. It was God who created the world entering into his creation and enduring the agony of a crucifixion for our sins. So the greatest thing that ever came into this life came out of suffering with Jesus. And so the Bible tells us if he suffered, what makes us think we won't? And if God uses suffering to bring about a good work through Jesus, then what makes us think that God won't use suffering in our lives? Paul had a tremendous clarity on this. Paul said that I might know him in the, in, in the power of his resurrection. Me too. I amen that. I like it. Power lunches, power ties, and power Christianity. Great. But he went on to say, and in the fellowship of his suffering. I'm less hesitant. I mean, I'm more hesitant to say amen to that. Paul said that I might fulfill the sufferings of Christ. How are the sufferings of Paul going to fulfill the sufferings of Christ? How can you add to them? 
It was complete. On the cross, he said, it is finished. And that was the end of the suffering for Jesus. From there on, he, he resurrected on the third day and he didn't suffer in between the cross and the resurrection, regardless of what some people teach. Seems I have to say that a lot now. But he didn't suffer. That was it. But God uses my suffering for the kingdom of God. God used the suffering of Paul to further the work of Christ so that people saw his suffering and he worked in Paul's suffering to bring people to Christ. And that's probably not all. He was doing more. He was using the suffering of Paul to work in the lives of Christians that he was leading and interacting with. And he uses our sufferings in the same way. People will often say, and this is, has been said to be the hardest question for Christians to answer. If God is good, then why did he make a world with evil and suffering? And those that answer such questions, apologists will tell you, that can be the most difficult answer, question to answer because in it is an accusation. If God's good, why is there suffering? And they usually attach a very compelling, moving story about it. I was in India and I saw a child who was suffering in some horrific way. They tell the details. I'm not saying that there's not horrific, what seems to be senseless suffering in the world, but they use that as an example. Then they'll ask you, how can a God of love allow that? And we're in the position of trying to defend God at that point. And God doesn't need you to defend him. God doesn't need me to defend him. All I can say is that God has his purposes in suffering. In the suffering of that child that, that is going through that, yeah, all I can say is that God has his purposes. It, there, there's only, the accusation only works if God doesn't have a purpose in suffering and evil. If, if, if it just randomly was out of control. Someone else said, um, God is either good or God is either loving, but look at the world around you. He can neither be both. Well, that's only true if God doesn't have a plan for suffering. And if God is good and loving and the ultimate plan is loving and good. And so God has used a world where there is pain, which we interact. I could do this from a, from a humanistic point of view. I could give you the same argument. I could talk about someone who fell into a fire and had incredible pain while their hand caught on fire and blistered and boiled and they screamed. And, and why did they have to go through that pain? I could accuse. I could, I could criticize evolution. Why did evolution create a world where there could be so much pain and suffering? But our bodies are built to interact with the world through touch. And we know something's dangerous when it hurts, right? Pick up a pan on the stove. It's hot. You let go of that pan pretty quick. And so pain lets you interact with this world. If there, if there were not pain, you would be injured greatly, right? If you didn't have any pain, if you didn't feel any pain, people that don't have pain and there is a disease, and I, I forget the, the name of the disease now, but there is one where people do not feel. They lose hands, legs, feet, toes, because they injure themselves beyond measure. Who's to say? And then out of that ability that God has given us 
to feel pain and to know how to back off, which is a gift, there comes ugly stuff that happens. There comes horrible, awful things that happen. Who's to say that God doesn't have purposes for those horrible things as much as he does for the small things? We can understand there's a purpose if I pick up a sharp knife and feel it sharp and let it go. I start to cut myself and feel it and stop. We understand that purpose. We just don't understand the other purpose. But God's ways are not our ways. God's not looking for you to accept what, he, what he's going through. In fact, there's a few things that the Bible says about affliction when our life gets difficult. Romans 8, 18, suffering can't be compared to glory. God doesn't say you'll never have horrible, awful suffering, but he says this, for I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. That will not be, per that will be permanent, this will not. Number two, we have help in the midst of our difficulties. We are not abandoned in the middle of our struggles. He says, no temptation has overtaken you. This is 2 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. And in our text, there's going to be a reference to temptation for their affliction. Affliction is temptation. When we face difficulties and struggles, there's temptation that's connected to that. So it says, no temptation has overtaken you such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what is able. You are, you are not going to be tempted beyond your strength, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to, to bear it. That's good to know, by the way, just for temptation in general. If we were talking about overcoming the being victorious in temptation, that would be a great verse to look at as well. God gives us a way of escape, but God's with us in the middle of it as well. Number three, God is working in us in tribulations. This is Romans 5, 3, and 4. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. I don't know who Paul's talking about when he says we. We also glory in tribulations? Hopefully us. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. We're also told that affliction can be a good teacher. Psalms 119, verse 71. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. That, that's affliction that causes us to learn, not affliction that is discipline. I have a tendency to think when I'm afflicted, when I'm persecuted, when there's trouble in my life, when there's hardships, that God's disciplining me. I imagine I can't be alone in that. We, we all got to be think, we all think the same, but here it's just to learn. It's good that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Bible also says before I was afflicted, I went astray. So God's affliction keeps us from going astray. That was a bonus one, by the way. The, the fifth thing the Bible says about afflictions is that affliction is working for glory. God's doing affliction and difficulties in your life for glory. It's not useless. Our suffering is never for nothing. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17, it says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. 
All right, let's get to our text. First Corinthians, uh, First Thessalonians, chapter three. So Paul is making his way through Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. He gets to where he wants to go to Asia, but God stops him. He gets over to Troas, which is right across from Greece. And he sees a vision of a man that says, come over and help us. Paul then goes to Philippi, where he meets Lydia and ministers to the Philippians, establishes a church there, very short time, goes to Thessalonica, is there for three weeks. He ministers among the Jews and he reasons among them that Jesus is the Messiah from the scriptures, which is prophetic evangelism, using the Bible and the fulfilled prophecy to prophesy, to, to evangelize. And he also goes among the Gentiles and there are Jews and Gentiles who become Christians in Thessalonica. But there are enemies. And right away there's an uproar. And one of the believers by the name of Jason gets called in before the Romans. Remember, now they're in Roman cities. They're no longer in, they're, they're actually near Rome in official Roman cities. And Thessalonica is official, an official Roman city. And they drag him before Jason, before the court, and they grab Paul and they rush him out of the city because Paul's in danger at this point. Paul goes on to Berea, on to Athens, on to Corinth, establishes a church in Corinth, and writes back to the Thessalonians. He was only there for three weeks. I, I was thinking about how you establish a church in three weeks. How do you choose an elder? He says that, they, they, that he was established in, in elders in every city. You, you've known the Lord. You were the first one saved since we got here, so you know the Lord longer than anybody. I guess you're the elder. But God's really at work, isn't he? And this church got established. But Paul doesn't live in a time where he can send a text or an email, and he's in Corinth, and he's wondering what happened to those people in Thessalonica. I know that they're suffering. I to he told them there were afflictions. What happened to them? And so in writing this letter, he now pours out his heart to them. And while he's in Corinth, he sends Timothy. Timothy goes to Thessalonica, meets with the church there, finds that they're doing fine, and then comes back and reports to Paul. Then Paul writes the letter of 1 Thessalonians. And so he says in verse 1, chapter 3, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left alone in Athens, I sent Timothy. All right, so correction on what I just said. It wasn't Corinth, it was Athens that he sent Timothy back from. Paul had been there for a while by himself in Athens. He teaches from Mars Hill, the Argopagus. If you've ever been to Athens, you've been there. Paul taught there. And he sends Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. So this is Timothy's commission to the Thessalonians. Two things. I want, I want him to go and establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. They've only known these guys for three weeks. They've really made a commitment to Christ, but he wants to make sure they're established. We have to be established in our faith. When you're established, it's hard to move you out of it. When you're not established, it's easy to move you out. I think the most, there's a lot of things we could, we could use as examples of being established. I think of trees the most. When you plant a tree, there's a time it takes for a tree to be established. When its roots get down deep enough and it's, it's on its own, doesn't need to be watered anymore, it's an established tree. That's what, what God wants from us. He wants us to be established. 
I I'm afraid that there are many that are not established. Many Christians, believers, that just are not established. When a storm comes through, they're going over. I instead of genuinely being able to withstand the difficulty. And then he wants to encourage them concerning their faith because they have some opposition to their faith. And so it says in verse 3 that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. So there's the difficulties. Well, I don't want you to be shaken by the afflictions. For you yourself know that we appointed, that we are appointed to this. Now, you got your Bible? Are you an underliner? Are you a highlighter? Then highlight that. We are appointed to this. No wonder Peter said we should not be surprised when we endure fiery trials. We are appointed to this. God's got a purpose in suffering, and when Christians suffer, we're appointed in it, and God uses it in our own lives and in the lives of people around us. And he says, you yourselves know, I told you this, we were appointed for this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation. So Paul says to this church within three weeks, we're going to suffer tribulation. We are appointed to this. We, we have difficulties. What I just did in the beginning of this Bible study is what Paul did with that church for th the first three weeks. I told you of the tribulation. I told you of the persecution. I told you of the affliction. I told you how God was going to use that. I told you it was going to be used to bring glory in our lives and that God uses it. Has that sunk in? Because it did with them. They got it. But I don't know that it sinks in for us all the time. Because I still run into Christians who say, I'm not following God if you would let that happen to me. Or let that happen to my child. Or let that happen to my wife. I'm not following him. Then it really hasn't sunk in. Then we really don't know the word of God. We're following a gospel that may be presented, but isn't the real gospel. The gospel we're following is I'm going to give my life to Jesus because he's going to make my life better. Where, where's that at? I know. Second Opinions, chapter 4. <laughs> right? Because it's not there. Oh, yes, our lives will be better. Oh, certainly. Even if there's affliction and trouble and difficulty and illness and it, it, no matter what, death, our lives are better because of Christ. But that doesn't mean that there won't be affliction and difficulties and problems because we've been appointed to this. And Paul told them, and you've been told. I know out of everyone listening and watching now, I know you guys have been told. Maybe you're hearing and not listening, I don't know, but you've been told. It goes on to say in verse 4, for in fact, we told you this before, we were with you, that you would suffer tribulation just as it happened and you know. He's like, I told you this and it happened to you and you know. For this reason, we could no longer endure it. I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. He knew that trials and sufferings could come into our lives and the enemy can use them for his own good. God wants to use the difficulties, the trials, the sufferings that you're facing for his glory, for your glory, and to do a work in the world. The enemy wants to use the exact same things to get you to walk away, to get you to not want to serve God, to get you to be angry and bitter with God so that every suffering, every affliction, every difficulty is a temptation that the tempter is using to tempt you 
It says here that our labor might be in vain. Paul thought it was possible that these people had made commitments to Christ and then had walked away in the midst of the, the suffering and the difficulty. I realize that, that causes problems for some, but hey, we just kind of need to look at what the Word of God says and understand it. Struggles and difficulties can cause people to walk away, and Paul was afraid of that. So Paul sent Timothy, number one, to establish, number two, to encourage concerning their faith, number three, to make sure that they weren't shaken, number four, that they would not be tempted. Now, this is a great um, outline for ministry. If you're looking at the Christians around you and how you might be able to minister to them, these four things are extremely positive. Number one, establish people. Are you used by God to help establish people in Christ? Number two, encourage them concerning their faith. Come alongside of them and encourage them. Say encouraging things. I'm persuaded it's easier to say negative things than encouraging things because of our fallen nature. We like discouraging. We like coming down on people. It's much harder to be a Barnabas, an encourager. So number two, are you encouraging people in their faith? Number three, are you helping people not to be shaken in the midst of affliction? This is why he sent Timothy, so they wouldn't be shaken in their affliction. In our ministry to one another, as iron sharpens iron, as we endeavor to be used by God, we want to help people to not be shaken in their affliction. And number three, to pray and help that they would not be tempted by the tempter and fall from the faith. That Paul's work would have been in vain, right? So there's a good outline for us in ministering to others. Now, Timothy comes back to Paul with an encouraging report. The Thessalonians are serving Jesus. They're taking the affliction. It's, a, it's an uplifting report from Paul. In fact, in the report and his response, we get an idea how much he really loves these people. He has a real, genuine love what is the secret to Paul's effectiveness? It was a genuineness in caring for people. Verse 6, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, he says not only are they walking in faith, but they have the evidence of love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you that you guys want to see us. We want to see you too. And that you remember us well. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distresses, we are comforted concerning you by your faith. Paul says, in the midst of my afflictions, in the midst of our, our afflictions, we are comforted by your faith. When we see others truly living for Christ and walking for him, if we really have a concern and a love for the brethren, then there will be an encouragement in us when we see them truly following Christ and walking with Him. In verse 8, he says, For now we live if you stand fast to the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you? For all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before God, night and day praying, exceedingly that we may make your face that we may see your face let me just change the words that we may see your face 
and perfect what is lacking in your faith. He says, I'm praying for you that we might be there again and that we can perfect what's lacking in your faith. So I'm back on the idea of ministry. What allows us to be able to affect other Christians' lives? What allows us to be effective in helping them there in their lives? And then what I see here in this section is verse 10. Night and day praying exceedingly. We must pray for those who we want to reach and help. I need your prayers and you need my prayers. Why did God set it up that way? Why couldn't it just be that God's going to do whatever God's going to do in your life without us praying for one another? Why did God make it so that our prayers make a difference? God doesn't want us to live in some isolated life for ourselves. God wants us putting other people's interest above our own interest, truly living and loving one another for his sake, for our sake, for them. What is the secret of Paul's great love for a people that he had met for three weeks and was so full of joy when he heard of their continued faith? Because he not only knew them, but he had been invested in praying for them. Sometimes I think that we may really, sometimes I wonder if we understand the power that is in prayer. Oftentimes Christians will say things like prayer. Prayer doesn't change things, it changes people. You know what that sounds like to me? And I realize that's a quote from C.S. Lewis, all right? And C.S. Lewis is a deep, powerful, heavy guy. Okay, I understand that. Let me just say this. Sometimes I wonder if that, is, that quote isn't from somebody who's bailed out. Prayer doesn't change things, it changes people. Like, I prayed a lot, it didn't change anything. Well, here's, I, I like to say you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what's changed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. You don't, you don't receive because you don't ask. And if we don't pray for one another, people may be going through temptations and afflictions and struggles and might not be responding to them correctly because we have not prayed night and day exceedingly for them. So if we want to minister, if God wants to use us as a, in ministry, and that, by the way, is something I find in Christians that is given by God. We want to be used. We want to be used by Him then we've got to begin to pray for one another, pray for the people we're ministering to. You have a Sunday school class, then pray for them. You, you, you have some kind of ministry, then pray for them. Pray for them. Paul did. And he rejoiced that his prayers were answered and that he wanted to see their face and perfect what was lacking in their faith. That's always should be the goal of a mature Christian is that they would be able to perfect what's lacking in someone's faith. And that's not an insult. I, I'm, I have areas in my life and I've been a Christian since 1973. I've got areas in my life that are lacking in my faith. There, there are people that God raises up to help me. So you, you reach out and help what's lacking in your faith. And so Paul now gives us an example of their prayer. He actually tells them what he's praying about. And by here, we get an idea of what we should be praying for people. This is Paul's prayer towards them. And here we find out in the midst of ministry how we should be praying for people. He says, Now may our God and our Father himself and the Lord Jesus Christ direct your way. Number one, give you direction. May you not just be out there like a rudderless ship being driven by every wind and waves, but may God direct your way. Number two, may the Lord make you increase 
and abound in love to one another and all. We should pray that the love that we have would abound. It is the main marker of our true faith in Christ. We want to grow in love. The Bible says, above all, have a fervent love for one another. Third John, there's a passage that says, above all, I would that you would prosper and be in good health. And some have taken that to teach that God wants you to be rich and never to be sick. But it's a greeting from John to his friend Gaius. Above all, I would that you would prosper and be in good health. It's not God telling us that's what he wants from us above all. Above all, what does God want from us? Above all, have a fervent love for one another. And so he fervently, diligently prayed that their love would increase. What, what do we pray for when we're praying for our Sunday school class? That God would direct the way of these kids. That God would cause their love to increase and abound to all. He goes on to say, just as we do to you, here we have to have an example of love. Love has to be in our lives. Paul had an example of love in order to say, I want you to love. It would be hypocrisy if he didn't love, but prayed for them to have love. The third thing that he prays for them, so that he may establish you, your hearts, blameless in holiness. That your hearts would be established blameless in holiness. That sin would be working out of your life. That you would be sowing to the Spirit more than you do the flesh. That you are not settling into sinful behavior and just allowing it to remain. I know I cuss people out, but that's just who I am. Eh, no, not really. Not if you're Christ's. That's not who you are. I understand that you're flesh. In, in a way, at times, we could say all of us, right? Maybe not right now, but there was a point in your life when you would have expressed yourself that way for, for the vast majority of us. Somebody here might say, not me. Well, good. The rest of us, though. Pray that they would be established blameless and holy. That's a good prayer. Sin's destructive. Sin brings death. There's so much suffering in the lives of believers because they allow sin to reign. They haven't died to it. And so we pray that they would be blameless and holy. And I love the way this ends. It says, blameless and holy before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. When Jesus returns, his saints are going to be with him. We're going to learn what he's talking about in the next chapter. I love how people will dis... I don't really love it. This is... That's a... It's funny how people will look at this passage and not equate it to the next chapter where he says that Jesus is going to come back in the sky with a shout and that we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to be with the Lord and we will forever be with the Lord. And people say, there's no rapture in the church. There's no rapture in the Bible, they say. Well, why don't you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? I don't care what you call it. You have to say there's a point where people are caught up into the air. Either that or you're allegorizing it. And if you are, I would say you're taking liberties you can't take. You can't go, God didn't really mean you're going to be caught up and changed. In 1 Corinthians 15, you're going to be changed in a moment in twinkling of an eye. You say, well, it sounds weird and I don't understand it. That's why Paul said, behold, I tell you a mystery. 
We are not all going to sleep, going to die. But some of us are going to be changed in a moment and twinkling of an eye. And no doubt someone will say, well, that's not what it means, Pastor. Mm, I don't know. Looks pretty clear in context and in the context of Scripture. Rightly dividing the Word of God, comparing Scripture to Scripture, the Bible says. So we want to pray that they would make it through so that when Jesus Christ comes back, they'll be blameless and holy. This does bring two things in closing. This brings us to a question that is, if Jesus returns and someone's sinning, do they go with him? A Christian is sinning. What if you're telling a lie right when Jesus returns? Or worse yet, in some sin that is just so embarrassing, Jesus returns. Will you be left behind? There's a song in the 70s. You, you, some of you will remember it. Life was filled with guns and wars and everyone got scattered on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. And then it goes on to say, you've been left behind. There's another song when I was a teenager that talked about a guy having an affair when a loud explosion rocked the room and turned the morning in the night, into night. And he ran out into the street and saw the sky roll back and Jesus Christ in all of his glory. And I realized the saddest eyes in the world were looking right at me and that I had been left behind. It's funny, I can still remember those words. That was a lot of years ago. <laughs> and I can tell you that song impacted me. I can tell you that I, I said, I never want to be doing something when you return. If you're a genuine Christian, you will be with him. People say, well, that's where you can be sinning and go with Jesus. Yeah. Few says he doesn't have any sin. Out of all the Christians in the world, there's going to be some who are sinning. And God's not going to go, bad timing. If you'd have sinned five minutes ago, you'd have been fine. But now you're left behind, buddy. Good luck with the mark. Good luck with the beast. Dodge those hailstones. Here comes my judgment, buddy. Watch out. I think, you, I think those who will be left behind are those who are not genuine Christians. So the thing we want to do is make sure we're not pretending that we're not those who say, Lord, Lord, and don't know him. That's, that's the application here. And that we would be holy and blameless at his coming. That, you know, we'd be doing something good. That we'd be doing something ab ab above and beyond when Jesus Christ returns. It's my hope for you. It's my hope for me. Now, I have three thoughts on this chapter, which is just to me such an interesting chapter of an example of ministry. Number one, can you remember someone who came alongside and encouraged you when you became a Christian? They either encouraged you to be Christian or they encouraged you in it. I'm so thankful for several men in my life that God used that way. My father died late 19, in April of 1973. I came to Christ in June of 1973. My youth pastor led me to the Lord. But then a couple years later, uh, another man came that God used in my life in greater ways than any other person. I owe him more spiritually than anyone else alive. His name is Bill Hubbard. He's a, he's a good friend. He may even be watching this now, saying, don't give my name. But he was a youth pastor. 
And he showed me that you can love Jesus and be a, be, a, be, a, and be a man. He showed me what a man looked like who loved Jesus. And there are s- several funny stories that I can tell you, but I won't. God used him in my life powerfully. Do you have anybody like that? Can you remember that? People that came alongside of you, people that helped you, people that were a part of, of your life in that way. Number two, are you encouraging anybody? Is there anyone that you're coming alongside of now that has just come to Christ or that's been there for a while that you can make a difference in their lives the way they made a difference in your life. Paul's doing it here in this chapter. Paul's the one that was investing in the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians hopefully will get to the place where they're investing in other people. Are you investing? And number three, don't forget the importance of prayer and love for those people that God has called you to minister to. The importance of prayer, we have the example here, and the importance of love, because you're praying that they would walk in love just as you do. If you, if you don't have any love, then what good is it? But if you remember those people that you're called to, and if you don't have anybody that you're pouring into that God has used you in that way, may God use you that way. May God bring someone to you. May you start praying for them and just see how God might use you to be able to encourage them. It's part of what we're all called to, not just Paul to the Thessalonians. It was such an incredible impact on them that they only knew him for three weeks and it changed their eternity. Amazing. Don't underestimate what God could do once you make yourself available to him to be used by him. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this chapter. It really is a great example of ministry to us as we see Paul interacting with the Thessalonians, who he, had, he truly loved, although he had only been there for a short amount of time. And Lord, help us in the midst of our affliction to know that you've got a plan, a purpose, that suffering is not for no reason, just because we don't understand the reason. And we trust you even though we live in this world where there is pain and suffering. We thank you for this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.